Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And we missed you guys the last few times. Uh, unfortunately, with traveling, sometimes you pick up a few extra friends, some of that being uh, viruses and bacteria. So we had to take a little break, or actually I should say give Michael a little break uh, to recover um, and just rest up. And we also upgrade our microphone. Do you hear how much nicer it sounds? So we had someone donate uh, a very nice piece of equipment to us. So we are using that to upgrade our podcast sound. So we are still in the road to Emmaus. We only got a couple more episodes to go in this series and then we'll be done. And hang on because there's actually a really cool episode, special episode coming at the end of the season. So we are in episode 21 of the road to Emmaus today. Uh, as always, you can help support this broadcast um, by donating at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence number four, faith.org slash give. And without further ado, here is episode 21 of the Road to Emmaus, Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament. Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. Michael Lane here, your host. Thanks for joining us as we're continuing our lesson on the road to Emmaus, uh, examining the Old Testament messianic prophecies concerning the Messiah and seeing how Jesus fulfilled these, this miraculous thing that he did, fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies and doing it so perfectly. And there's, there's so many cool things that we have covered in this and so many titles of the Messiah. There's been so much symbolism. But how Jesus has fulfilled each one of these. And we know that, that these are Messianic prophecies because they're used by the New Testament writers to describe these things. Well, as we're going through in, in these lessons, uh, we are numbering each one of them. And I said roughly there's about 80 or so of these. We're at number 67 today. We're in the book of Ezekiel. So today's lesson is all going to be based just on the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is one of the major prophets. And as we explore Ezekiel, just to give you a little mindset of what's going on here with Ezekiel, like who is Ezekiel, because this will help in understanding some of these prophecies. Ezekiel is a contemporary of Daniel. They live together at the same time. Um, Ezekiel is a little older than Daniel, but the thing is they, they were about the same time. Um, this is also at the very end of Jeremiah's life, the prophet Jeremiah. But um, So they overlap a little bit in time. Uh, Jeremiah dies, still uh, Ezekiel is pretty young when this probably happened. But e Ezekiel is a prophet who starts off there in um in Judah and the kingdom of Judah. And then when Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian, comes and conquers the land, and he comes on more than one occasion because he comes um, and conquers Jerusalem, doesn't totally destroy it, but he takes the royalty out, the important officials, uh, etc., and brings them back. That's when Daniel and his three friends were deported to Babylon. Ezekiel, who is a priest, is also one of these that is deported. And probably the way it's written, it appears that he was deported at the same time as Daniel and his three friends and, and uh, some of the elite of the um, kingdom of Judah. They go on. The poor people were there. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and sets up a puppet king. His name is Zedekiah. And Zedekiah becomes the king and reigns for about 11 years or so. But then he finally rebels against King Nebuchadnezzar again. The Nebuchadnezzar comes back with his army and totally, this time, totally 
totally destroys Jerusalem, burns it to the ground and tears the walls apart, destroys the temple. He's already taken out the gold and the bronze and everything that that Solomon had made um, in in, uh, preparing for the temple when it was built back um, in his time. But Nebuchadnezzar has taken all of this and put it into the treasuries in Babylon. Um, we read about more about that towards uh, chapter, I think it's chapter 5, and um, the book of Daniel talks about some of that. But Ezekiel is one of these that is removed early in the, Neb, uh, the Babylonian captivity. And so as he is there, um, he becomes a priest. He reaches the age of 30 in captivity, and he becomes a legitimate priest because a priest can't be a priest until he's 30 years old. And then he serves, and he is given uh, visions from God and visions having to do with the future um, and a couple dealing specifically with the Messiah, though many of his prophecies are dealing with uh, things that are uh, that take place in the future with the nation of Israel and stuff. There are a few that uh, pertain to Jesus in his first advent also, and those are the ones, of course, we're covering. So we're at number 67, and the passage we're going to be looking at for this one is Ezekiel 17, and it's verses 22 through 24. And again, we're using the English Standard Version as our key version here as we've been studying, because it's a word-for-word translation. And as we're studying words of the of these prophecies, it's important for us to, I think, uh, best use a word-for-word translation, which New King James is very good for this. Uh, New American Standard is excellent. Or if you use an interlinear Bible, that is phenomenal. Um, English Standard, though, is the one we're using because it has a lower readability um, level, and I just really like that one, so that's why I use this one. But um, So, number 67, Ezekiel 17, 22 through 24, and the title of this one is The Messiah, The Sprig. The Sprig. Um, We're talking about like a a shoot. Matter of fact, um, in the NIV, it's referred to as a shoot, um, as the the symbolism having to do with the Messiah. What's really interesting about all these names, all these titles that the Messiah is given in the Old Testament, um, in these prophecies, we have seen many of them. Um, He's sometimes, um, in in some of the prophecies we've covered, he's been called a, um, a savior. He's been called the lion of Judah. He's been called uh, the um, peace, the prince of peace. He has been called uh, the shepherd. We're going to see that when he applied again in this book. He has sometimes been referred to as a fortress in some of the Psalms. Also, the rock of salvation, uh, the lamb of God, um, son of David. That is one that is constantly used over and over and over. We've seen this so many times. And even when Jesus was here and was going through Jericho, uh, the blind man uh, calls out to him, son of David. So people associated the titles to the Messiah, and that was one. He's also been called the king of the ages is another title. Uh, He's been called life. He's eternal life. Um, He is holy because it says that he will be God, um, the son of God. He is called Lord. He is called the Lord of glory. Um, And here we see another title. He's called the sprig or the shoot, if depends on which translation you're using. In some of our songs that we sing in um, Christianity, some of our more contemporary Christian music, they use the word shoot. Um, 
or sprig, whatever, but we have those type of terms too. So this is where this one comes from. So if you have your Bibles, you can open and follow along with me as you take notes on this, or if you're just sitting back and listening and maybe with a cup of coffee or in my case, tea, um, just having a, a great little time here, let's get into this lesson. So Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 20 through to 24 reads, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar, and I will set it out. I will break off the topmost of the young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it, that it may bear branches, produce fruit, and become a noble cedar, and under it will dwell every kind of bird, in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make the high tree a low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Now, this passage, this is a poem. Ezekiel writes a lot in poetry. This guy is a poet, and he writes a lot in poetry. A lot of the Bibles in New uh, Old Testament, a lot of the Old Testament is written in poetry. But this is a beautiful poet. And in this poem, what we see is, is just typical in poism, uh, or poetry that we even see to this day. Uh, there's word plays with symbolism, and that's what we have here. This is a great example of symbolism. So it's talking about this sprig, that he's going to take this sprig and he's going to plant it on a mountain. Now, the mountain is actually talking about um, Israel because it, it actually says that I will put it on the height of Israel. Um, it's interesting that um, Jerusalem, where the temple sat, was on top of a mountain. Um, we call this like Mount Zion, and um, that's, you know, there's Mount Moriah, and that's where, you know, um, the temple actually sat, Mount Moriah, Mount Moriah, and that's where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, and that's where the temple is actually standing today at the threshing floor that was up on top there. So Jerusalem, if you've been to Jerusalem, you know this, the old city of Jerusalem sits on the side of a mountain. Um, when it says to go down uh, to Jerusalem, down, you're going literally down. You're walking down the hill to go up to the temple, <laughs> you're going up the mountain. And so that's why it's, it's talked like that. But this is talking about a sprig, a plant. So this beautiful example of poetry that we have here, this sprig is talking about Christ, that he is the sprig from the lofty top of the cedar. And Ezekiel predicts, he is writing in the future here, that the Messiah will provide a shelter for people. Now, again, what we've seen so many times, and I've referred to as a dual prophecy, this is dualism here, that we have um, in this prophecy, there's a prophecy, a part of it has to do with Jesus and his first coming and his first advent. Um, that was his ministry that's recorded in the four Gospels. But Jesus is coming back. The Messiah is coming back again. And when he comes back, he's going to be a victorious warrior judge king. You see, the first time Jesus came, he came as the suffering Messiah. 
And he offers grace to those, to all sinners. He offers grace. And it says in Scripture, he, he wills that none would perish. He wants people to come to him, to repent and enter into his love. But repentance, that was the primary message of Jesus to the world is repentance. And we've sort of lost sight of a lot of that. We sort of focus on Jesus always saying about loving each other. And that's true. That's how Christians are to act to everybody. But Jesus's primary message was repentance. You don't believe me? Look up a concordance and look up the word repentance and see how many times Jesus says this throughout. And not just him, Paul talks about it also uh, in many of his writings that we are to repent. That's the key thing. So that's the coming, the first coming, the suffering Messiah. When he comes comes again, which is what we are waiting for now, and maybe we're getting close to this, we have uh, the second coming where Jesus will not come as the suffering Messiah. He's going to come back as the warrior judge king Messiah we've talked about. This prophecy here, this poem talks about both of these cases. Now, as it says, under uh, under it, um, the, the sprig, uh, it will dwell every kind of bird, and the shade of its branches, every bird um, of every sort will nest. So this is talking about having a, uh, the Messiah will come and he will be lifted up. And the thing is, he is going to be, uh, all the all the people of the world will come to him and, and come and find rest and peace in him. And actually, that's what we count, we get today. Uh, think back to the Christmas story. Remember how the angels appeared to the shepherd? And what did they say about this Messiah being born? Um, he comes with peace. He's going to be the Prince of Peace. He's um, giving peace to the world, not peace like the world would expect um, in, in the realm of politicalness, but he's talking about the peace that we can have with God. Um, forget the political things. The more important thing is what is your relationship with God? And if you do not know God as your Lord and Savior, God now, if in that case, is your enemy because he is holy and you definitely aren't. But if we repent and come to him in repentance and through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can be saved and enter into the family of God. He puts his Holy Spirit inside of us, and we are, as Paul writes, a new creation. A metamorphosis takes place in us. And it's not so much our doing, it's what the Spirit of God does in us. And he gives us a new desire to try to be more and more like him. And that's what this is talking about. Now, these birds that are being mentioned here are birds are representing people. How people will come and find rest in the Messiah. Jesus came to give us rest, to give us peace with God. As it says in Romans 5.1, therefore, we, being justified by faith, we can have peace with God. And through our repentance, being justified by the blood of Christ, we are no longer God's enemies. We're God's family. How cool is that? And we get to rest. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, uh, it's talking about how Jesus offers us rest. And we aren't to be burdened with a lot of things. We are to rest in him. And we have a peace because of this. When birds come and nest, it's a peaceful situation. And that's what the people, as they come to Christ, as they come to the spring, as they come and, and abide with it. You notice to build a, a nest, you have to abide. The, the birds have to abide in the tree to do this, to become, in, in a sense, sort of one with the tree. A nest is actually bonded to the tree. And to abide with 
Christ. That's what this is talking about. So it has an, um, the suffering Messiah aspect to it of God giving us peace um, with him through Jesus, through this sprig, and we get this, this peace with God when we abide with him. That's that aspect. But it's also talking about what's going to happen in the future when the Messiah comes back again. Uh, but Jesus came to give us rest and to give us peace. Thus, he did fulfill this Old Testament prophecy. Now, that was number 67. Let's go to number 68. Number 68, Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 25 through 27. So Ezekiel 21, 25 through 27, and I'm entitling this one, He Who Comes, He Who Comes. And as we read this one, we're going to um, see a little bit of history with this, of what's going on um, in uh, the the history of the kingdom of Judah. And as we go into this, we're going to see that this also has a lot to do with the Messiah coming in his first advent. So this reads, this is number 68, and reading Ezekiel 21, 25 through 27. And you, O profaned wicked one, prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban, and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low, and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. Now, again, we're going to see that this is sort of a dual prophecy, but what this is talking about is you might have to go back and do a little reading, maybe at the last chapter of Second Kings, last chapter of Chronicles, or if you've read the book of Jeremiah, you know about a guy by the name of King Zedekiah. He was the last king of Israel. He was a puppet king. He wasn't a direct descendant of David. Nebuchadnezzar, when he conquered uh, Jerusalem the first time and stuff, he changed a lot of the kingship, and he put this guy, Zedekiah, and made him the king. But he was a puppet king. And talk about wishy washy. Oh my gosh. This guy, if you read the book of Jeremiah, this guy is, he's just like a um, a flag. The wind blows one way, it, it turns that way. The wind blows a different direction, it goes to the other. He is so back and forth in his things. He is not following God. The people are still worshiping idols and stuff. And Zedekiah was a wicked king. He was not following God's command. Matter of fact, uh, like I say, he was so wishy-washy. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesies to him, and Zedekiah doesn't pay any attention. At one point, um, Jeremiah writes his scroll, has uh, his assistant Baruch take it to Zedekiah and read to him all these things that he needs to do, these words from God. And King Zedekiah takes a knife and cuts off pieces of the scroll and then throws it into a burning pot. I mean, that's the way you treat the word of God? How contemptible can it be? I mean, and so he's condemned for this. And another time, Jeremiah then is um, is sent for by King uh, Zedekiah and asks, what, what should I do? What does God want me to do? And Jeremiah tells him. Next few minutes, um, or a few days later, some of Jeremiah's enemies come to King Zedekiah and say, this guy's a, a traitor and stuff. He needs to be put to death. Um, we need your approval. He gives them the approval. And they take him and they put him in a pit. They put him in a prison. And then some of Jeremiah's friends go to the king and say, how could you do this to a, a man of God who's trying to help you and, and trying to show you the, the way of truth? 
truth. And Zedekiah, oh, yeah, that's right. I should get him out of there. So he orders him removed from all. I mean, the guy just can't make up his mind. Also, I want to point something else out to you that's sort of a, a pet peeve of mine, if you will. In archaeology today, and in many times in Biblical Archaeology Review and some others, I love the magazine, uh, Biblical Archaeology Review, and I love listening to and, and reading papers on archaeology. It's my hobby. I love this stuff. But how many times I come across some archaeologist who's trying to disprove things in the Bible, and they come across, and they'll say they're digging in an area, and they find some idol during the period of the kings of Judah, like in the equivalent of uh, Second Kings. And they find this, and then they'll make write a paper and saying, see, the Jews did not always worship God. The Bible's wrong. The Jews had other gods. Well, I don't know what Bible they're reading, but in 2 Kings, we see this happening all the time, that God was constantly being set aside, in some cases, totally tossed aside. His temple was even closed at times uh, by certain royalty, and then it was reopened. A lot of these kings were not walking with God, and the people were not walking with God either. Thus, they were worshiping these idols. The Bible's very clear on this. But no, we'll have people say, who are under the impression that the Jews have always worshiped God and just the one God, and then they'll find some idol, and then they write an article saying, see how untrue the Bible is. I don't, like I say, I don't know what Bible they're reading because very, very few kings walked with God totally. I mean, you have, David was, was one, you know, one of the exceptions, but Solomon. Solomon started off worshiping God, then he started building temples and stuff to other gods. Rehoboam was also worshiping other gods. You get into all this, and some of these kings are really bad kings. Um, Ahaz and stuff, oh my gosh, he, he is a terrible king on this. Then you get Hezekiah comes along, he's a good king. They get rid of idols, they bury them and stuff. And then, then you get some other bad kings come along, and then you get Josiah comes along, and he tries to purge. Israel of all the idols. Israel was full of idols most of the time. The people didn't totally follow God. That was the problem. And that's why they were cursed. They broke their covenant commandments and stuff with God to, to not worship any other God. And they kept breaking this. So an archaeologist, or if you're listening on the news and they find something, it says, oh, look, here's the God um, Murdoch or something. And see, the Jews actually worship Murdoch. That goes against the Bible. No, it doesn't. The Bible is very clear, and that's one cool thing about the Bible. It shows the faults of the people. Most religious books and stuff will never do that. Most histories don't do that. They don't show you the, the shortcomings of people. It shows you know, just the high points, uh, their, the most victorious moments, but not the Bible. The Bible shows us even the baddest, the worst, the darkest moments of our life. David murdering um, Uriah, um, stealing his wife. I mean, that sounds like a TV movie. Um, and, and other atrocities that are done are mentioned in the gospel or in the writing of the Bible. And the thing is they, they, we see constantly they were turning away from God. So, uh, sorry, I'll get off my soapbox now and get back into the lesson, but that just really irritates me when people say that they have found historical errors in the Bible about these other gods and stuff. Well, they're not reading the Bible very carefully, in my opinion. But anyway, as we looked at this, um, this is talking about King Zedekiah. And it tells him at one point, it says to remove the turban and take off the crown. So he is being removed. This is the last king that Judah ever has. The last legitimate king. Even to this day, the kingdom uh, or the nation of Israel does not have a king. They got a prime minister. They don't have a king. But there is a king who 
is living today, who came, but his kingdom is not of this world, and that is the Messiah itself. You see, this passage is talking about where it says ruin, ruin, ruin. It's talking about the fall of Jerusalem, Jerusalem's end as a city. It's a city of rebellion against God, and God is declaring, your time has come. It's up. King, take off your crown. There's not going to be a king anymore until, it says, until the one who comes, which I will exalt. And he, um, this is going to be, of course, the Messiah. As it says, God states in it, not be restored until he who comes to whom it rightfully belongs. Now, Jesus, as we know, and we've covered in other prophecies, Jesus is a descendant of the kings of Israel, our kings of Judah, and David in particular. He's often called the son of David. So he is the rightful king. And, and he is the king. Even when Jesus was on trial before Pilate in John 18, and Pilate asked him, so you're a king? And Jesus answers, yes, what you said is correct. I am a king. But not of this world or my followers would have fought and to, to free me. Um, so Pilate, your kingdom's not of this world. Uh, no, it's not. I came to give truth. And so it's a different type of kingdom than a physical kingdom we have today because Jesus is reigning. He is sitting on the throne in heaven. You can have earthly thrones on every nation. Who cares? But there is one throne above the heavens and controls all things, and that's the throne of God, and that's where Jesus is sitting today. As it says he in the book of Hebrews, he is now sitting on, in chapter 1, the first couple of verses, talks about Jesus sitting on the throne of God, not on a secondary throne, not on a little uh, silver seat sitting off on the side there. He is on the throne of God. He is the king. He is the king of kings, the rightful king of Judah. And this is also talking about when he comes again in the future, as I said, the Jews and we Christians are waiting for this Messiah to come back, the victorious warrior judge king. And when he comes back, he will fulfill this. So the he that's mentioned here in this passage in verse 27 is about Jesus. And this promise was first mentioned back in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, um, that it talks about this thing. And it says in Genesis 49, 10, just to review for a second, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of the people. This is a prophecy that a descendant of David, or a descendant of Judah in this case, is going to sit on the throne and it will be perpetual. It will be forever. And of course, that's Jesus. He's sitting on the throne of God now, but he's going to come back. He's going to conquer here on earth and sit on a throne here too, but he will forever be on the throne of God because he is God himself. Well, that was number 68. Let's go to number 69 quickly here. Uh, number 69, this is Ezekiel chapter 34. And it's a longer passage. It's verses 23 through 31. So we're going to read through this. Now, as I said at, a little bit at the beginning of this thing, how many times do we come across titles or symbolic names in poetry having to do with the Messiah? And we're going to see a lot of them in this one. In this passage, we get some different names of the Messiah and of the people. Um, and it's, it's really cool. And there's a, a phrase in here, because I'm entitling this one, um, showers of blessing. 
showers a blessing. Now, that sounds like a hymn we used to sing in church. Uh, matter of fact, it was a lot of fun singing hymns like that. There should be showers of blessing. Um, beautiful hymn, and this that hymn is actually based upon this prophecy here from Ezekiel. So this is the 69th prophecy as we're covering. It's a longer passage, but what I want you to do as I read this, uh, not fall asleep on me here because it's a long passage, but what I want you to do is focus on terms that are used and how they refer to the Messiah. See if you can pick them out, because we'll come back at the end then, and I'll point some of them out to you. But see if you can pick them up as I read this. Different terms dealing with the Messiah, different parts of this poem. So, starting off, this is Ezekiel 33 or 34, um, verses 23 through 31, and it reads, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their seasons. They shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. They shall no, long, no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. You are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord. Now, this is again going to be referring, it's a dual prophecy dealing with the suffering Messiah and also with the victorious warrior, judge king, Messiah. But in this passage, Ezekiel is informing us that the Messiah would be a what? A shepherd. And that there's a flock that follows him. Those would be Christians, the people who believe and follow Christ. That's what this is referring to here. And that he will give us peace and that he will give us blessings, showers of blessings. And now you see how this, like that hymn, if you know the words of that hymn, how that falls into place here. On many occasions, Jesus even referred to himself as the good or the great shepherd. For instance, in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
it just moved down a couple of verses from there to verse 14 of John 10. I am the good shepherd, and I know, I know my own, and my own know me. Sheep out in the in the wilderness, even in Israel today, sheep follow the shepherd. They recognize the voice, and the, the shepherd leads them into the pen, um, a stony walled area. And the uh, shepherd will, you know, in ancient times in particular, would sleep sometimes right there at the mouth of that. And he could talk to the sheep, and the sheep would be hearing the voice of the shepherd and how it would calm them. Do you know the voice of God does that with us today? I've had circumstances in my life where I have been very, very um, either afraid or very nervous or anxiety or whatever, and the words of God really, really help. Um, One case in particular, I'll just bring this up, didn't mean on saying this, but one um, back in 1997, I was having a major uh, surgery on my neck, and the surgery went well. They took a bone out of my hip and put it into my neck. But I developed a post-op infection in my hip, which grew very quickly. Cellulitis, uh, my whole side started to become inflamed, and I came very close to dying. And as they had me in the hospital on this one day, um, being treated with IV antibiotics, uh, at least three different types that I recall. One of the antibiotics they gave me because the infection was so bad, um, they gave me an injection into my IV. And um, very soon, within moments afterwards, I started to have a seizure. And uh, as the the nurses came in and the doctor came in um, to treat me for the seizure now I was having with this, um, it, it passed. They gave me medication to stop it. And then um, I seemed to calm down somewhat, but I was still, I remember laying there feeling very strange and not just sick from the infection and, and fever I had, but just feeling strange in my, um, I was shaking constantly. I could not stop shaking. I don't know why. They, the nurse just said it's part of the reaction, just relax. But a, a lady from our church, I, I wish I could remember her name. She was an elderly lady from my home church back in Illinois. This was a Calvary Bible Church in Bourbonnet where I was um, working and attending. She came to my room. She felt compelled, and I remember this was a Sunday, because she was. She told me she was sitting in church, and all of a sudden she felt a very strange feeling, like a, or a voice from God, like God's Spirit telling her to get up and go to the hospital to see me. I, I had hardly talked to her because uh, we're a pretty good-sized church. I mean, I, I talked to her every now and then. She actually supplied Bibles for my, my students at school. She would always um, purchase Bibles for me to hand out to people. And so I, I knew uh, of her, and we've talked a little bit. But uh, for her to come visit me in my room, that was a little strange. But I remember her coming over right at the as I was having this seizure. That's when she came. And after the doctors and the nurses left, um, she asked if she could stay in there for a bit, and she did. And as I said, I was still shaking and having a, a lot of problems from this, but um, she told me that she was sitting in church and she felt that the Holy Spirit told her that she needed to come over here because I needed help and that she was supposed to come and, and read Scripture to me. 
So she pulled up the chair next to me in my bed and she started reading from the books uh, or the book of Psalms and just started reading one Psalm after another and after another, certain ones. She didn't do them in a certain order. She picked, it was like she had special ones to read and they were very calming. And as time went down uh, over the next few minutes, how I felt at peace, how the the pain and everything I was experiencing had lessened. Um, the severity of my seizure was fading away quickly, and I'll never forget that moment as she sat there just reading these psalms to me. And I was not saying hardly anything. I was having a difficult time talking when she first came in. But then all of a sudden, um, I realized, wow, all this has passed. It's very peaceful. And with that, she said, well, um, you're doing better now, so my job is done. And she wished me well and got up and walked out of the room. I'll never forget that. The peace of God just does things. It's, it's amazing. And God does take care of his sheep. The voice of the shepherd can really help. And so it's giving the shepherd gives showers of blessings which I think in this case, I was getting showered with blessings from this person. And, and even evidence for faith, this ministry has been just receiving abundant showers of blessings that God has opened up doors for us to go all over and, and speak and our podcasts and doing these and videos and how much we've, we're seeing people watching this stuff it's, and listening. It's just, it, it just blesses our heart uh, to hear so many things going on like that and um, getting opportunities to travel around and, and share the gospel and share the truth about um, the word of God to people. It's just amazing. You know, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, it again says this. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Here again, the writer of Hebrews is talking about um, this peace that comes from God. And from who? From the Messiah. It says uh, the shepherd, the great shepherd, gives peace to his people. And what's a shepherd provide? Peace, safety, blessings. That's a cool prophecy. And of course, when Jesus comes again, he will do this with all all those. He will sit on a throne and rule, and it will be a time of beautiful peace. Well, it takes us to number 70. The last of these that we're going to cover in this lesson today, um, this is number 70. Wow, we've hit 70 now. Um, this is Ezekiel 37, verses 21 through 28. So again, it's sort of a lengthy passage. Um, Ezekiel 37, 21 through 28, and I'm entitling this one, The Reuniting of the Kingdoms the reuniting of the kingdoms. Now, this passage of Ezekiel predicts that God's people will come back together. And now you got to go back a little bit of the church history. Again, sometimes it helps to go back and read, you know, um, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles to get some of the histories behind things. But the kingdom, uh, the, the Hebrew nation was fractured during um, the reign, the beginning of the reign of King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, grandson of David. Jeroboam I from the northern uh, tribes uh, led a coup 
against, and it was God in, in force and God uh, ordained to do this because the people had rejected him, were worshiping other idols, and he allowed them to split. So 10 tribes of the north joined together to make the nation of Israel, and sometimes it's called Ephraim. They, they um, are the 10 tribes to the north, the northern kingdom. Two tribes remain loyal to David, and that would be the tribe of Judah, which David is a descendant of, and the tribe of Benjamin, just to the north of Judah. They formed one nation, and that was the nation of uh, Judah, the kingdom of Judah. So we have the upper kingdom, the lower kingdom. Now, they fractured, and they would remain fractured, and they have. They have not come back together. The thing is, what ends up in this kingdom of the lower kingdom, the Judah and Benjamin, are what we today say are Jews, Judah, Jews. That's where this comes from, um, the entomology on this type of, of word here. Now, as we look at this, the, the kingdoms have split. And what ended up happening when the Assyrians came around um, 720 BC in that range, they conquered the upper kingdom, the kingdom of the 10 tribes to the north, and not just conquered them, uh, didn't slaughter them all, but deported many of them um, to all parts of the Assyrian Empire, which they controlled much of the known world at that time. And they dispersed them. And the thing is, they never came back. The 10 tribes have been lost. Matter of fact, they're often referred to as the lost 10 tribes of Israel. And they're off, you know, they're. They're gone. That kingdom no longer exists. The kingdom to the south was eventually taken over under the Babylonians, under Nebuchadnezzar. Um, but they, Isaiah prophesies this even before it happened. We've already covered this in one of our previous prophecies, how uh, a guy, Isaiah says, a man who will be born, whose name is Cyrus, who will come to power, he will overthrow the Babylonians, and he will allow the Jews that the Babylonians deported to Babylon, he will allow them to go back, rebuild Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple. And as I've said before, it's so interesting when Isaiah was saying this because Jerusalem was still standing and the temple was still standing when he said a guy would be born. Cyrus was his name, and Cyrus wasn't even born, you know, for over a hundred years. This this was hundreds of years before uh, Cyrus was even born. This is taking place, but that Cyrus would come and he would allow the people um, to come back and to go back to the land. But this prophecy is talking about the uniting of the kingdoms. Now, part of this has been fulfilled. Um, in the first part of uh, the advent of Jesus, when he came as the suffering Messiah. The second part is actually dealing with a future thing, when the ten tribes will come back. But um, let's read this and see, because um, this prophecy is, is, part of this is fulfilled under the rule of Cyrus, when the Israelites were allowed to return to the promised land. But it's a dual meaning prophecy. So follow along as we go through this one. Ezekiel 37, 21 through 28 reads, And then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among that they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all their backsliding in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them. 
and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall deliver in the land, dwell in the land, and I will uh, that I have given my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever, and I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them up in their land and multiply them and set up my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now, what's really interesting is when Ezekiel's writing this, the temple has been destroyed. Jerusalem has been destroyed. Yet it's talking about, and the 10 tribes to the north have been dispersed and they're gone by the Assyrians who the Babylonians conquered. All this has happened. So it seems like there's no way this could ever be that not just will they go back and um, that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, that there will be a temple, there will be a throne again, that a descendant of David will sit on this and this will be a kingdom of peace. But he's talking about making a new covenant. That is something we saw back with Jeremiah, that there is a new covenant coming, and which is what we have today. You have the old covenant, which is what the Old Testament is, and Jesus instituted these prophecies dealing with the new covenant, and that is our New Testament, or new covenant is another word for it, and that's what we have. So Ezekiel here is speaking of, though, a spiritual reunion with God and the Father, and with the, the people and um, with God. There will be a reunion. There's going to be a new covenant, and it's going to be for everybody here. But of the two kingdoms that have been lost, he's pulling them back together and will make them one. So this, of course, that part of the prophecy will not occur until the servant David, that's the Messiah, that's Jesus, would come. So as he came the first time, he came with peace, offering of peace and stuff. It's going to come. He's going to come again, and when he will rule with peace and and stuff. But God's people. It's a prophecy will be unified. What unifies these tribes to come back is the Messiah. And that's the key thing. The Messiah will unify the people. Um, He will establish an everlasting covenant with the people. And some of this prophecy has come true already. Um, The Jews were allowed to go back under Cyrus and Um, after they came back, they rebuilt the temple. Jesus came to the temple, established a new covenant. So that part has been fulfilled. But the future of when the 10 lost tribes come back, that's yet to occur. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. As you know, if you've listened or read my bio, I worked in genetics for a while. And uh, genetics is a fascinating science and stuff. And I also used to work back in the latter 80s and early 90s, and I used to actually teach in the 90s biotechnology classes. I used to teach about DNA technology and gene splicing and, and doing all sorts of things. The, the year I left uh, Illinois to head to the mission field, my class on bio, biotechnology, we were actually taking genes out of animals that have bioluminescence, and we were inserting them into house plants. And the students were let um, were able to uh, make their houseplants glow in the dark um, under certain conditions. So we were doing stuff like this, inserting genes and moving genes around. Now, with DNA technology, something else has happened that I don't think everybody is aware of in 
in society. For this prophecy and these future prophecies of Jesus coming again to take place in the end times or, you know, eschatology, we're talking about the last days of the last days. One thing that's going to be taking place is it says here specifically in this prophecy is that the 10 tribes, the lost tribes will be found and brought back. But they disappeared around 722 BC. No one knows where they are. And some would say there's no way to find them. But DNA allows us to see our ancestry. Uh-huh. How many of you, I bet there's a number who have listening to me right now, have done a DNA ancestry, um, have paid to have your ancestry found, and maybe you have found some very interesting um, traits. Maybe some of you have found going back into the Middle East and stuff in your DNA heritage. Um, I do know, because I read a book on this, I cannot remember the title of the book offhand. It was a few years ago. Um, it was written by a Jewish rabbi who was writing about, um, he's a scientist also, um, and he, he loves genetics, and he was writing about how um, they are using this DNA technology to help find the 10 lost tribes. So isn't this cool that what we're seeing advertised on TV, find your ancestry, et cetera, et cetera, is actually being used in some cases to try and locate the 10 lost tribes? Why would we do this? Why is it needed? Because they have to come back together. Now, the point is, God already knows where these people are. God knows the ancestry. He knows where the lost tribes are. And it says in Scripture that he's going to bring them all back to Israel, and it's going to happen in the future. This has not happened yet, but I can't help but just sit and marvel how DNA technology is now being used worldwide to discover people's ancestry. I just find it fascinating. Is this another step showing that we're closer to the last days of the last days? Very well could be. Well, anyway, that's that prophecy there, and I uh, we've come to the end of Ezekiel. So our next chapter, uh, next uh, lesson that we'll be doing here will be um, on Daniel, but and we'll probably have just one day on, or one whole lesson just on Daniel. But I want to thank you so much for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed these, uh, this uh, podcast today and, and these other podcasts we've been doing. Um, this has just been so much fun. We, we so, so love hearing from you. And we, we thank you for comments that you write on our website. Go to our website. Check it out. There's videos, too, you can watch. Um, or you can actually have me come and speak at a, at a group or something. Um, we're booked right now. We've, we're taking a lot of bookings already for this year all the way into November. So time is starting to uh, fill in rather quickly. But if you would like to have me come, uh, you can contact us for that also. Uh, and if not, just listen to our podcast. And my whole goal here and all all of us at Evidence for Faith is that you would just deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ and some that they would find the, a relationship with their Lord Jesus Christ, that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And we're just trying to add to his kingdom and help you in your faith. So thank you for joining me. And until we meet again, take care and God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And help us keep this broadcast free. 
You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.